The middle of Kickstarter suck. They are terrifying. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Jordan. And before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. And if you would like to help us out with uh, supporting this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. And if you enjoy our content and would like to, like to help us out with hosting costs, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, today, we have a special guest joining us. Special guest, who are you? So my name is Daniel Wormke. I am currently running a Kickstarter for a very odd little RPG called Cartomancy. Well, thank you very much for reaching out and uh, uh, getting in contact with me so that we can talk about this game. I've uh, You sent us a little bit of material about it, a uh, link to the Kickstarter and a link to your, um, your, your, business, your games page, um, smokeandmirrorsgames.com. Um, that's where people can find you. And then if you go to Kickstarter, uh, you can find search for cartomancy. Um, and right now the Kickstarter is ongoing, um, as of the time we are recording this and whenever the episode comes out, um, as of the recording time, there's, you've, you're over 90% of the way to your goal. Um, just since this morning, whenever I last looked at it between, when I first got up this morning and then right before the podcast, you had picked up a couple of, a couple of other um, uh, backers. So it is definitely growing and inching toward that, uh, toward your goal. Yep. But these are the painful inches. So when you launch a Kickstarter, um, as long as you've done your homework right, then you can go zooming through the first chunk of money um, and you get elated and you start going, oh, this is going to be like one of those quarter million dollar projects that like everyone is going to be talking about <laughs> when you go to Origins next year. And then uh, suddenly reality kicks in and you realize that everyone that you had already directly talked to over the last year has backed. And then you have the slow, painful process of really getting where you're going. So this is the the dark middle of the Kickstarter process. but. I am excited. We should cross the finish line probably tomorrow, maybe the next day, depending on how uh, the backers look. So um, this this game that you are promoting or that you're kickstarting is Cardomancy. What kind of a game is Cardomancy? So it's a role-playing game, but it's an odd role-playing game. Uh, so it, let me do like a little history lesson, right? So I grew up playing RPGs in the late 80s, 90s, and I was in a very, like, simulationist world back then, where everything was about um, these, like, hyper-realistic systems, or maybe just hyper-accurate to whatever it is that they were trying to represent, and that was cool. Like, I played a lot of Twilight 2000 and... um even things like Cyberpunk 2020, where you have different hit locations and all these different rules on exactly simulating the difference in between a nine millimeter parabellum round and a, and a 10 millimeter. And it's just, 
obsessive detail. And that's, that's cool about all those source books. Don't get me wrong. Um, then later in the 2000s, I got into indie games, stuff like, uh, Fiasco, uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and they're great. And they completely ignore all that simulation stuff that they just care about the narrative and telling a story that's, um, the, this very particular type of story that the rules only support doing that, that you, you can't do anything with fiasco except for making a comedy of errors where people do terrible things. That's what it does. Um, but I felt like there's like a third part of the triangle that's kind of being missing. Um, I wanted to really lean into the game mechanics itself. I wanted to make a fun game on the table and I wanted to make it really abstract so that whatever story you want to tell, you can just kind of layer on top of it. And so I made a system where I don't care whether in the narrative world that you're in, you're using a disintegration beam, a bow and arrow, or a shotgun. They all have the same rules. You're just striking someone else. In fact, uh, the main attack mechanics, it doesn't even have to be a attack per se. You know, this could be a rap battle. Um, and you're just simulating like the popularity of the other guy going down. So I wanted to make something that you can tell basically any kind of story you ever want to tell. With one proviso, you've got to have a big conflict involved. This is not a system of subtlety, right? Like, if you want to tell a very gentle, slow kind of narrative story and deeply explore things, then there's other systems I can recommend to you. But this is about big action, big changes. The different characters will have vastly different capabilities and powers. Um because that's what I like. I get really bored of a D&D group where everybody has like two points of different um, attack bonuses. Um, I, I, I want things that feel completely different. So it sounds like this is a this is definitely a generic type of system designed to do a lot of different genres. Yep. Yeah, that is correct. So packaged in. We have a faux medieval setting, and we also have a um, uh, space marshals, which is golden age science fiction, ray guns, bug-eyed monsters, you know, the kind of science fiction that almost more exists in the popular imagination than anything that people were actually writing in the 30s. Um, so, but both of those have suggestions after them for how you can reskin those as totally different settings. And you could use the adventures presented to be superhero adventures or whatever it is that you want. Um, so it is generic, but if you've played like GURPS or BRP or, um, any of those other uh, generic systems, Usually you have to have a stack of rule books to get all the details right in a setting. I get around that by just saying I don't care about the details. Those don't matter. I want to get to the big action in the story. And so the idea of this is that it's a game that you can stick on your shelf. You can come home from the movie theater when we can go back to movie theaters and go, oh, 
I totally want to play a game in that world. And with very, very little modification, you can be playing it that night. So it sounds like it's designed to do like wild concepts pretty easily. What about like more, like, like more, like a more mundane type of uh, game idea where like you're, you're playing just normal people who are put into like just doing some sort of relatively normal thing, like playing police officers doing a, um, like a, an investigation of a crime or something like that. Does your, does the system handle that? Yeah, you can definitely do that sort of stuff. And so I, most commercial role-playing games get themselves into a pickle when you do things like investigation a lot. So usually it is basically up to the GM to make an investigation happen. Um, because it, if you flip open the majority of rule books that are on your shelf, probably the like main system chapter is labeled combat, right? So role-playing games, for better or worse, are built around having really interesting and deep fighting mechanics. But then when you get outside of that fighting kind of realm, then maybe you have like, okay, you can roll a skill check or whatever. But even within the same campaign, you can switch things. So... You can use the same rules for uh, that you would use in, uh, so you're playing some cops and you have, uh, you know, let's put them in a couple of scenarios. So they're on the street and they have a classic like burglary black ski mask sort of thing, classic cop action sort of stuff. And that's resolved like a regular combat in this system. So then. Later, you also have a session where you do uh, community outreach sorts of stuff, and you actually have to like talk to the locals and change people's minds. You can use those same mechanics in you reaching out to that other person and building a dialogue. Then you are investigating a crime scene in the next session, and you can build it so that finding a clue is an obstacle using similar rules that you would have for any of the other things. And so all you have to do is learn that basic core of rules, and then it's very easy to simulate whatever it is that you want to have happen. But again, if you're looking for a system where, let's say you're cops, you want to have one guy who is, you know slightly smaller he got or, or uh, smart and slightly smarter he got like one more degree than the other guy and you know paid a little more attention in school and then the other guy is like a slightly better shot this system will not do that for that you want a system that's willing to deal with you know one guy having a plus two and another guy having a plus three this only deals in big picture so what does the what does the core mechanic look like then like what walk us through here let's say i've got a character who's mad at clayton's character and i decide i want to punch him in the face what do clayton and i have there at the table as far as cards in hand and we haven't even got into what like a character sheet or whatever might look like um but how do we resolve that one like very basic you know kind of conflict so Let's assume that you and Clayton 
both have uh, zero powers, you are like as vanilla as the system produces. So you will both have a number of cards in your hand as basically like your one core stat if there's no powers involved. And so a seven card draw is normal for most games. So in that case, you would have a seven card hand. And in this very boring scenario, because there's not uh, the powers and the complexities to make things uh, more spicy, then you would simply play a card out of your hand as a strike. And then Clayton would have the opportunity to play any spade out of his hand to defend with. If the defender has equal or better on his card, then it blocks. Um, hit points are very low numbers. This isn't a, you know, 30th level D&D game or late stage Final Fantasy where you have, you know, 600 uh, or, you know, 6,000 hit points over a person. You, the basic starting is just like three. So it's three hits, you're out. And that might not be death. That might be whatever the narrative tells you would happen. So obviously this wouldn't be a lot of fun. So almost everybody is going to have some powers. So basically you reduce your hand size by one and then you have a power. These are all, like I was saying before, pretty big things. Um, and so they would let you radically alter the play. So you can have a multi-attack that would let you hit many low-powered enemies at once or a summon ability that would create that where basically you would put a card of the appropriate suit, in this case diamonds, um, down on the table. And that is your summoned creature, which could also be the ability of a cop to call for backup or to rally members of a crowd to your cause or whatever. Um, and then that uh, diamond is able to act independently each round. So, you layer up all of these different powers and you start interacting with each other and you get some emergent gameplay in how all of these things bounce off of each other. But at its core, this is the type of game that you give a couple of eight-year-olds a pack of cards, they'll invent, let's pull cards off the top and see which one is higher, right? Mm -hmm. It is very easy to describe that core to people and they get it. And... Can I get, so, can I get a little PhD student on you? Go for it. All right. So, um, I think of luck as being two different things, right? You have pre-decision luck and post-decision luck. So, in Dungeons and Dragons, or nine-tenths of the other RPGs that you've ever played, um, you decide what you want to do. I want to stab a dragon. And then you roll the die. And it says, you did it. You didn't do it. And that's cool. Obviously, I've enjoyed rolling a lot of dice. But I don't really make decisions in a lot of these games at in a lot of uh, encounters. Like, I, I know perfectly well that my barbarian is going to use his two-handed sword. Like, if you're playing a wizard, then you have to, like, balance which spell you're going to cast. But basically... You know what's going on. You're going to walk up. You're going to say that you attack. You don't have a decision. The only decision is made by the tiny piece of plastic that rules your destiny. But cards are different because they're pre-decisional. At least if you have a hand of cards, obviously you can just use 
cards as a substitute for dice, but that's silly. I don't like doing that. Um, so if you have a hand of cards in front of you, it's spreading out five, seven, however many different possibilities of what you can do. So say you have um, two or three different powers for two or three different suits. You're looking at your cards. You're going, okay, well, I could use this power to do this cool thing, except I could just use it for a strike. Maybe it's more valuable to just attack with it. Ooh, I've got a big spade in my hand, um, and I could hit the big bad guy with that, and we don't have a lot of cards that can, but spades are the only things that defend, and so do I want to waste it on that attack? I think I want to survive this thing. Uh, So you get into interesting decisions, and to me, that's what I like about games is, uh, you know, Sid Meier defines games sort of tongue in cheek as a series of interesting decisions. And there's something to that, um, that I like having a little bit of that destiny in my hands that I can make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So, so broadly speaking, um, it sounds like each of the, the four suits, uh, represent sort of categories of types of actions that you might um you might be taking uh what what do each of those look like what are your four broad decision paths when you're looking at at the four suits so spades are the big truly different one uh that they just defend there are no powers tied to spades um then hearts are defensive healing in nature it's your uh it's your white magic from magic the gathering kind of stuff you know um Mm -hmm. these are uh ways to help out your party often um clubs are offense powers they often have the ability to hit multiple targets at a time um to uh, do more damage than you would be able to normally that sort of stuff um and then uh, diamonds is where all the weird stuff lives. So all the stuff that has truly game-breaking, like, you did what <laughs> kind of uh, applications, that all gets moved over into diamonds. So that's, like, where summon and that kind of stuff is. So often, like, if you're playing in that medieval kind of world, often um, people who want to play something wizardish end up with a diamond power or two. But... Think about when you draw cards into your hand, um, you could pick three different hearts powers and be like maximum healer all the time. Cool. Except what if you don't draw some hearts, right? So uh, it encourages characters to have abilities outside of a, of a small core zone. Um, also, I should mention powers in general... This is a game of exceptions, but it, in general, powers are uh, use pip cards, so 2 through 10 to make them go, where the face cards are more powerful for strikes. So I did that because th- there's a beautiful bit of psychology with it, that you draw a hand of cards, and you will almost always be happy with the options that it gave you, that... If you have an ace, you're super pumped that you have one of the most powerful strikes in the deck. But if you have a 10, you're delighted that it's one of the most powerful um, uh, power-using cards in the deck. And so there's kind of two lumps of your excitement. 
And so drawing five cards, you're going to get some good stuff out of that. Mm -hmm. But it might not be the stuff you really need at this moment, which right. adds some stress. It makes everybody look at you and say, hey, you're the party healer. Can you fix this? And you're like, no. <laughs> Is the rate of card expenditure and replenishment uh, like one for one every turn? Or how's that work? Wonderful question. So... One of the biggest, like, strategic and the most gamey layer of all of this. So you do not draw cards in this system, except at the beginning of the conflict. Um, and so what happens is every time you use a ability on a obstacle, obstacle is what we refer to any bad guy or other um, antagonist element as, um, Every time you put uh, uh, use a card against them, that card goes into a kitty behind them. And so that will build up and up and up, especially if it's a very powerful opponent that maybe you've had to do a whole bunch of stuff against. Then once you defeat that opponent, those cards go to the person who strikes that killing blow for them to redistribute. And there's rules about everybody has to get an equal except... Obviously, where it can't be equal. And so that leads to an interesting st uh, strategic and social layer of, I got all these cards, our characters are getting that like excitement of, okay, guys, we beat one, now we can take out the other. And that's your, um, your in-universe, why this is happening, is it's the turning tide of battle of you getting this one victory and that's going to propel you towards more victories. Um, but, uh, the player <laughs> then is looking at this hand of cards and going, man, I want that king. I really want that king. That king could keep me alive. Now, I know it would be more useful if I gave it to this other person at the table, but what have they done for me lately? And so you get some interesting things from redistributing those. But, you know, it means that your card selection is getting poorer and poorer often as you're going, as some cards aren't going to be uh, taken back up each turn, like ones used as defense don't go into a kitty. Um, and so by the end of a combat, if you judge things right, uh, then you should be getting to where each player has two cards in their hand and they're really stressed about what they've got left and all the good options are gone and I've got to go for broke with this last try, uh, last try. And that's really where you want to get to with this game. Surely that doesn't also um, encompass how the, the DM or, or dealer or whatever the word is, um, how their card economy works, right? No. So pff, DMs break rules. That's, yeah, yeah. you know, it, we are somewhat more explicit about that than a lot of systems where, you know, D&D uh, &D wants you to use these creatures at this challenge rating and here are the exact rules of how that's going to work. But uh, we've got some wonkier things. So, so let's start. So you could have an opponent that or a obstacle that's a handed obstacle, so they have a hand of cards just like you do, uh, or the player characters do, um, and the uh, 
and basically has powers just like a player character, and effectively it's just like the protagonists are. Cool. You can do that. And it could even have that same economy. But more commonly, you will either have simpler things, so face value obstacles are kind of like our disposable mooks of the system, uh, where you simply deal cards, you might have a pre-built structure of what values you're using, or it might just be dealt off the top of the deck, and every round, they attack at the value of the card. If you're able to play a spade to of equal or higher value, then you don't get damaged. Cool. Uh, attacking them, you need to have a card of um, a strike of equal or higher value. By the way, in case you haven't picked up, uh, everything is generally resolved in um, protagonist's favor. And so if you're defending, you can defend with a card of equal value. If you're attacking, you can attack with a card of equal value. Um, but uh, that means that those are super simple you can just kind of mow through those guys. You just need to have a card of higher value to knock them out. Maybe they've got a couple of extra hit points. Maybe they do two hit points of damage when they attack. Maybe they have some other little rules like that. But basically, they are incredible, incredibly system, simple little bits of system. Um, on the other end, we have exotic obstacles that can be as complex as you want. Um, I try with a lot of those to really dig in on the game nature and the physical nature of the game. And so, for example, um, uh, we commonly use chasms and rivers and that sort of thing to split up a tabletop. And so you can just basically spread a line of cards like you were playing Go Fish as a kid. And then if somebody wants to cross it, then they've got to play a card. If it is of equal or higher value than what they pull out of the river, then they get across. Otherwise, they take a damage. So it is an easy way to make the table look interesting and make those like big, strategic, chunky decisions where if you're a player and looking at that, you're saying, okay, what's my opportunity cost of this that you know, do I want to play a good card to get across that river to help my buddy out? If I play my best card, I know I'm going to get over there, but then I'm not going to be any, uh, be able to really help my buddy once I do get there. So, um, so yeah, exotic obstacles can get as weird as you want to get. Okay. So what's, what does character creation and character advancement look like then in the system? So pretty well the simplest character creation that you are going to see in your life. The dealer is going to tell you what the draw number for the game is. Like I said, seven is like our our traditional baseline starting point. Um, then you uh, uh, pick a number of powers. Each power you have is going to reduce the ceiling of how many cards you draw to at the beginning of an encounter by one. Um, and so usually with a seven card draw, we recommend two, maybe three, but that ends up with you not having many cards in your hand. It can get a little depressing. Um, but it means as long as they're each in a different suit that you're happy with the vast majority of cards that you will ever draw. So trade-offs again, you know, I, in character creation, just like in play, I want there to be interesting decisions. Um, and then those powers, you're just picking off the power lists. And so you're, 
balancing, okay, I want to specialize in this one thing, but if I have too many uh, diamonds powers, then what happens? Uh, um, and all those other little bits of balancing act and just party composition, just like making somebody be the cleric in D&D. Um, there's often that look around the table and going, okay, does anyone have a power who can bring in new cards um, into play? Since that can be huge to get a an injection of cards midway. And there's a couple of powers that will do that. Um, but three by five card, five minutes, you've got a character. Okay. Um. Oh, you also asked about advancement. Sorry. Um, so advancement is not a major core of this system. Uh, there are advancement mechanics, but I guess a whole lot of fiction, the characters really don't advance that, you know, if you watch an episode, uh, if you watch the first episode of, uh, the original Star Trek and you watch the last episode, uh, is Jim Kirk any better at commanding this starship or creepy wooing uh alien women i i I don't really think so you know um and so it's not a major specialization especially since a lot of people enjoy using this for one shots however um the routes that you can do advancement on basically you got two main direction or three main directions um one just like in D&D, you can provide items and other like one-off bonus kind of things. Things that say, okay, you always get a plus one to doing X. Um, so all of your diamonds are considered at a plus two because of your new wizard staff. Something like that. And so that is highly GM controlled, a way to move forward with that. Two you can do big, chunky progression of upping the draw number on occasion. So say you wanted to do a three-month, about 12-session campaign where um, you were going to move from being farm boys through, like, mid-career warriors of the realm to, like, god-tier, let's go and stab dragons unless they surrender first when they see our glory. Um, you can do that by just saying, okay, once we hit the end of that first one month arc, draw number is going to go up by one. You're going to all, you are going to feel a huge amount of difference in a way that D and D sometimes you hit those magic levels where you get a feat, you get a new level of spells, you get, an animal companion all at the same time or something like that. But mostly it's very incremental. Again, I, I like big chunky stuff where you really felt it happen. And so that sort of draw number increase, you will absolutely tell in your next combat that things are going different. Um, then third, um, you can basically have your own custom deck. So, um, have you guys played Gloomhaven? Mm -mm. No. Yeah, you're missing out. I I, I get that it's like $5,000 and you have to like mortgage your house to buy a 23 pound box of board game, but it is, uh, totally worth it. But, uh, a mechanic that's used there and also is used in this, um, you can have a deck of cards that is specific 
for your um, for your player character. Then, as you advance, you are given the uh, you are given points to remove cards from that deck and to add cards to that deck. So, imagine having two identical decks, one of which you are actually playing with, um, and kind of a cost table of all right. I've after the session, the GM tells me that I've leveled once. Um, I can. So I look at my little table, I'm able to get rid of, let's say, I don't have any powers that use clubs. So I, I am always going to be unhappy if I draw the two of clubs. I'm just going to pull that two of clubs out of there, toss it. And then the probability for what you're drawing in the future is going to subtly change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also say, all right, well... Um, I, I love getting diamonds, especially high diamonds. I'm going to spend the points to stick a, uh, a 10 of diamonds into this deck. So I've got two tens of diamonds in there. Again, it's a slight probability nudge. It's not that big chunky kind of stuff of, uh, of changing the draw number, but it matters. And you'll, you'll start to feel that over time. So does each, does each player have their own deck of cards in this game and the game master probably maybe having a deck as well? Yeah. So in, in normal play where you're not using that advancement system, usually I recommend just shuffling two decks of, uh, regular playing cards together for the PCs to draw from it, just two decks to make it so you don't have to stop and, um, shuffle the discards very often. And, um, then the GM using separate cards, especially if they're using like face value obstacles and other things that are like face up on the, on the, uh, table, uh, because the probability gets wildly screwed, <laughs> skewed so fast if you do any weird stuff. Um, but if you're doing that separated system, then you have to be, if you're doing that separated advancement system, then you have to be very careful of sticking your cards back in a little baggie at the end so that nothing wanders in and wanders out and the GMs have to trust you that you're not, you know, sneaking that extra ace of spades in there. How would, um, let, let's say I'm running this and I want to give my players or one of my players anyway, you know, the, uh, plus three flaming MacGuffin sword. Is that basically going to be like a power that could be passed between players? Would that also take a card out of their hand? How how does stuff like that work? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, it depends on how you want it to feel. Like, um, so, you know, when the Lady of the Lake gives a sword to King Arthur, it's not a pass-it-around magic item. Like... You, Arthur, have this, and so it can just be a, hey, you got a new power. Um, where, uh, if you want to encourage something where it is something that they pass it around, cool, you can do that. I even did, uh, I once did a game where one of the characters was an item that there was a, um, that there was one of the protagonists who was a sword that could play his own cards uh, in support of that protagonist's action. And so they worked together to achieve their goals. So 
Um, it, again, the sort of thing that you can do with a system that's really excited about the big weird stuff. Which I, I guess I should also mention in that, so game balance. Um, so I played a lot of like second edition D&D is really like my, my, that is my place of power. What I think of everything else as being a variation of in role playing games. And that was a wildly unbalanced system that it, it thought it was kind of balanced, but there was weird stuff that would happen. And suddenly you've got a 20th level, um, dart specialist who is doing a thousand damage from throwing little metal nails at people. Um, and I am okay with a little bit of the system going wonky and not fighting to make sure that everyone is exactly equal. Since I'll guarantee you in actual gameplay, everybody has um, their own roles they will end up playing uh, as long as they're not totally screwing this thing up, that they're all going to feel valuable. But everyone is so different that there's really just no comparing uh, characters to characters. And so that's one reason why we can be so loose with so many rules and just say, I don't know, give it to him, give it, uh, you know, make it a power or make it an extra card that gets put into your hand or make it whatever. Um, because with things being big and weird like this, there's not that same base of comparison where you have the mini maxer sitting at the D and D table going, Oh, well, You've got a plus nine and I only have a plus seven. Grr. You know, it, you just don't get into a lot of that with this game. So like in this game, if I were to, if we were playing the Avengers, there is, there wouldn't be a problem if, uh, if I was playing Thor, God of Thunder, and Jordan was playing Hawkeye with the bow and arrow, there would, there wouldn't be a, a, a an in-story disparity between just what we would be able to do to influence the story. Correct. So, um, you know, you always have like, uh, uh, you know, how you talk about these things in your narrative might matter. And um, I'm always one for making fun of Hawkeye, but uh, it, no, you, you can have it built where you're going to have totally different abilities that, so say uh, here's, something we've seen before. So like, um, your Hawkeye has a ability where he, uh, can multi-attack a whole bunch of targets. Well, uh, multi-attack like most powers only uses pip cards. So if there's a bunch of face value enemies attacking you, he might be able to mow through waves of the, um, the low value enemies by just throwing a club or two out. And, that's cool. That's totally Hawkeye just blasting his way through uh, people with his infinite quiver of arrows. Um, where uh, Thor might have chosen powers where he gets a like one really strong attack, and so he shows up and um, Led Zeppelin starts playing, and he just crushes somebody with a hammer, right? So. Everybody's useful, but you can make characters that feel very different. How long does a typical combat 
take if, you know, standard D&D scenario, you know, four to six players with whatever they've got and, you know, roughly equivalent number of orcs or something, real world time, how long does it take for this system to crunch through that? Fair question. You know, when I was playtesting, I should have, like, stopwatched people. So I will tell you, we often want to go with, like, 45 minutes. Like, it it clicks along. Um, there's no math to do. And so, you know, a distressing amount of my gaming time over the last couple of decades has been, like, calculating hit bonuses or you know it just just the stupid stuff of maintaining um uh how many hit points a large creature has that takes some real time and brain power my kids think that i am a crazy wizard that i am able to like do three digit subtraction in my head by glancing at it it's like well i mean it, you don't kill a greater worm overnight. It, you know, you got to be able to crunch this math, right? Um, and all that stuff takes time and takes brain power and takes you out of the game. And so really encounters are pretty short. And in fact, um, uh, I've never heard it voiced as a criticism, but it's something that you might be critical of is often play sessions go pretty quick once you know how you're playing. And so you might tell your whole story and have four satisfying encounters in a night and it be done before you would have gotten your normal D&D game done just because you're not stopping for, you know, okay, so so you're playing D&D, you have a big encounter at the beginning, halfway through somebody levels, you take an hour while that dude is looking through, uh, looking through and picking feats and, you know, optimizing. Well, maybe I want to apply that, uh, prestige class this level or is it next level? And it, there's just a lot of bookkeeping in these games. Even stuff like, okay, we stop at an inn. How many hit points do we heal again? Uh, okay, well, it's your level times what? Well, I'm also doing this. Uh, okay. Did you make your herbalism roll? Um, we don't do that. <laughs> We're just, all right, cool. You won. So everyone is fine. Let's go to the next, uh, let's go to the next encounter. Unless there's a reason to retain damage in between. Um, let's go to the next encounter and let's get the hammer and the bow out and start, you know, beating up Loki. So how many different, uh, since it sounds like powers is the, the core thing, the core customization uh, of the system. How many of those are in the, the core book that you're publishing? Uh, fair question. Um, there's not a ton of them because they're all meant to be very broad and cover a huge amount of na- different narrative zone um and so like if you've got heal you might be if you've got heal and you're in a medieval setting um maybe you're uh you know a a a herbalist and you're able to have people drink your concoction and they're healed or maybe you're um divinely inspired and you can lay on hands and light shines from the heavens or whatever so 
you know, there's not, again, that like fine variation where, you know, if you look at feats lifts in D&D, uh, there's 40 of them that can be boiled down into smacks good. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say probably like five or six per suit. And so probably only 15, 20. Okay. But that's still enough where everyone at a five person game has unique abilities that you're not going to see. And again, game balance isn't the same overriding priority. So make your own. If somebody shows up with a, with something that isn't covered by what's written. And then tell me so I can put it in future updates. <laughs> so what all is in the book, like the, the core rule book? Um, what, how big is it? Um, what, what are the different materials that you, different resources that are inside of the book? Yeah. So you're looking at probably going to end up at about 150 page digest size book. Um, you're going to have the core rules in the front of the book and that is split up in classic RPG fashion into a player's guide and a, um, and a dealer's guide. And so you're going to be able as a player to sit down, read for 10 minutes and basically know which direction to point your hand of cards to get playing. Um, and then the dealer guide will have a significant amount more, uh, information for developing the real depth of the game. Um, then you are also going to have a number of other scenario packs. So each of these play sets, um, will have it or has, you can look at them right now. Uh, all backers have a beta test link. Um, so four Kings is our like faux medieval setting. It is your like basic bread and butter game. It also serves as a tutorial. The first encounter is all very simple, um, uh, face value obstacles. So it's very easy to go through. Uh, also I'm currently doing a series of how, um, how to play cardomancy videos that are getting posted in the updates. Um, the next one will be up tomorrow, which is in the distant past of any listeners. Um, and it shows you how to play through this first encounter in Four Kings. Um, and so through that, it's going to show you a variety of, uh, social situations, fighting some goblins, fighting some bandits, maybe even a dragon in there. Um, and then Space Marshals is a, um, old school sci-fi setting. Now, a lot of settings we try and introduce like one big idea for. Um, and that's one of the things that we're currently doing, uh, as people ask us, how do you think it would apply to this setting on the Kickstarter page? I'm replying with rules I've used in my games or have come up with, uh, now as like one big rule to alter it to handle, uh, Pokemon like, uh, uh, creature capturing or, um, a highly investigatory game or anything like that. So the space marshals, uh, setting, one of the big things that it introduces is sort of a vehicle combat system, uh, where everybody is kind of lumped together on board a spaceship 
and engaged in a battle and ways that different people can action the world in different ways from that. And so just to give a uh, different bit of tactical variety in there. And so it is also a scenario that you could play through in an evening, uh, in addition to just being a setting that it could, it gives you adventure hooks that you could keep playing after that for some time. Um, and we, uh, there is also a, uh, eight bit, um, uh, RPG gaming setting. So something very like, Final Fantasies or Chrono Triggers or any of those um, that is available on the website. It's probably not going to make the cut for the final book um, unless people give me a whole ton of money. Um, and then one of the big dogs in there is Toytastrophe. So one thing that we realized as we were playtesting that some people got really into the combat and you would... And I'm sure everyone who has done RPGs for long enough sees this in good systems on occasion, uh, where a couple of people after a game were just like, okay, well, let's not deal with any of that narrative stuff. Let's just like have a couple of battles. All right, man. Um, and so that evolved until we have a freestanding war game that uses the same mechanics, but all of the rules are rewritten in there to make it very easy for a player to pick up and run with, and it's built using toys. So it has a tactical system where you move your toys around on a table, they battle it out with each other, they have powers just like in the main book, and um, it's a lot of fun. I've played it with both my like hardcore historical wargaming, um, can tell you where the... 10th Dragoons were on the 3rd of April kind of guys, and I also have played it with my 6- and 10-year-old kids. So um, it's a lot of fun. And let's be honest, people who buy role-playing games, it, they might not have something that they are willing to call a toy, but you've got something on your shelf, whether it is a uh, a figure or a model or a keepsake or whatever, that you're kind of aching to have a reason to push it around on a tabletop and make pew pew noises. So, um, so yeah, we've had a lot of fun with that one. So you mentioned that one of your six year old kids is playing a, a version of the, uh, tabletop, uh, war game. Like what, what age demographic would you say is probably the low, the youngest that the role playing game could uh, be handled by? All kids have different maturity levels. Um, I have done it, uh, previously with uh two different 10 year olds um and that worked fine you can definitely if you are a parent and you are looking for a my first role-playing game um this can do that recognize that it is a very different feel of rpg and so if you're um if it's very important to you that their understanding of how an rpg plays is the same as yours um, then you might want to find something else as your, uh, you know, my first D and D experience, but, uh, it, it is, it is totally playable by the grade school crowd. Um, Jordan, do you have any more questions just about the game and the system? Uh, no, I don't think I have any more questions about the game. Um, I was going to ask about, um, some of these other games that you've worked on, Daniel. 
Okay. Well, many of them, uh, uh, yeah, let's talk about it. It's a long story filled with size. Do what now? Don't worry about it. Ask your questions. Okay. I, I was just going to ask, um, you know, what, what are these other games that you've worked on? Yeah. So, um, I have, I'm a person who, so I think I was halfway through college and then realized that everyone else I knew didn't have notebooks full of like game mechanics and probability tables and, um, you know, different settings and that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. I am someone who has always made games. Um, the question is the publishing games part because that is somewhat more challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so I'll tell you my first big game project, which saw, uh, little, uh, outside viewers was in, I think 2003-ish. I got really excited to write a, um, a D20, uh, supplement, a D20 setting since it was back in the, the heady days of the open gaming license. And so I made a game called Ascension. It was a, uh, D&D set, uh, D&D setting, uh, where it was a open ocean world ruled by dragon. It had a lot of Polynesian, uh, Greek island state and other like maritime culture going into it. Uh, there was a lot of like death and rebirth stuff. I was getting a degree in classics and world religions at the time. And so I was all in on that kind of stuff at the moment, got the art done, got the layout done and I got deployed. Um, and so I'm, uh, a National Guardsman I was then, and I still am. And so as soon as I had gotten everything together and I was looking into how to actually publish this sucker, um, I got the order and I had to go overseas. Cool. That's fine. I'll deal with it when I come back. And so in the time that I was deployed, the open gaming license got completely rewritten so that there were whole chunks of it that I would have to reword things and certain concepts were suddenly off limits that had been in play. And so basically when I came back, that book never actually saw the light of day. Then a few years later, I worked on Flying Saucer Blues, which was a playset for Fiasco that went and went out. A lot of people enjoyed it. So basically it was a uh, have you guys ever played Fiasco? Yep. Okay. Cool. So that one, it should still be available on, uh, uh, drive through RPG. Um, but, uh, it's a setting full of, uh, crazy sci-fi happenings. So it's alien abduction stuff, all of that. Um, has a lovely techno babble chapter that I very much enjoyed writing. Um, and, you know, Fiasco playsets are what they are. It's floated around on the internet um, for a while. Then, let's see, a couple of years... Uh, so so then, a couple of years ago, uh, I came back to OU after having long since completed my bachelor's uh, 
to get a master's degree in game development. So officially, I'm I was in uh, a media studies master's program, and so halfway through that, I started a big project to um, measure people's feelings towards the complexity of games. So. So this stems from, I also do tabletop war game stuff, and I am constantly looking at rules where I know that there is a mathematically simpler way to resolve what we are doing. But most tabletop war games will have you rolling tons of dice over and over and over to try and resolve how many of your little plastic men get removed from the board. Um... And I went, okay, are these guys bad at math? Is that why they're making these convoluted systems? Or is there something in people, or at least in gamers, that makes us want to have a more complicated resolution mechanic? Cool. So, turns out I'm a social scientist. I have the tools to check that. So, I did a uh, control experiment. uh, And this is the long way of getting around to my next game um, using a game called Robot Smash that I designed um, that is a very simple board game. I I will tell you, you know, you guys as gamers, once you play this two or three times, you will recognize like optimal strategies in it and this is not meant to be what you're taking to gaming night every week. Um, But what it is, is a simple game that's very easy to manipulate the rules so that you can see if things change. So how that was built is there was one system where um, people rolled uh, one die and that would tell you whether you blew up the other robot or not. And then there was a variation where everything else, the movement, all the stuff stayed the same, except you did that same roll or a similar 10-sided die roll three times. So it's the classic, uh, oh, what is it? It's rolled a hit, rolled a dodge, rolled a spot, you know, that kind of stuff or rolled a damage. Um, and I wanted to see the players. Who, so you play either one first, then you take a survey saying how much you liked it. And would people like the one who, uh, that was, uh, more complicated more? Um, so the answer, like in much science is yes, people did end up liking the, um, more complicated one more, but not by a statistically significant, uh, margin. So, uh, so data inconclusive, more research needed, all those usual things. Um, but I did find a lot of the re- uh, the results from that interesting. So. Then after that, I've spread around that rule set to other researchers um, so that they can all uh, have it to alter. Because something I realized very quickly in this program, most people who study games are not game designers. (laughs) And it is kind of shocking (laughs) how bad some of these uh, comparisons that they'll make are. So there's, there's a famous research study that I won't site here but uh on video game violence and they had 
one group of people play basically like pilot wings. It was a very, uh, it was a video game with two controllers. You just kind of drift your glider left or right. And another group of people play a first person shooter with WASD controls and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of play, they gave both of them a test to see how stressed they are. And shockingly, the people playing the first person shooter were like, oh yeah, I'm totally stressed. <laughs> a lot of these people don't even play video games. Like they're random whoever you got out of a freshman psych class. And they're like, what? How do I do this? I'm so confused. And so obviously confounding factors are way more important. And so, um, so I thought that this would be an interesting tool that people can use, that researchers can use to um, implement their own rules and see. So, so if you want to study violence in games, make the pieces that you play this game with little soldiers for one set of people and little bunny rabbits that give each other hugs for the other one, you know, uh, so that you can actually just change one thing. So there was that. Um, and that more or less brings us up to date. So I'm in a PhD program now. I graduated with that master's. Um, and that project ended up being my thesis. Um, and yeah, uh, now I'm, now I mostly moved on from doing the complexity of game studies and I am mostly dealing with emergence now. I'm, I'm curious about the, this, complexity uh concept when it comes to games how how would you quantify or score um two different game systems like my background's in computer science so you know i'm thinking about like you know the big o notation for algorithms and you know things like that um is are, are you looking at like you know, a fairly analog point of comparison. Um, if you're looking at, you know, say fifth edition versus third edition or, you know, some wildly different thing, world of darkness or something like, how do you do a, an apples to apples comparison between two RPG systems? You do it very carefully. Um, so there's, uh, a lot of different ways to do this. And so I've got, you know, I wrote 30 pages, I think, in my thesis on um, how you can define complexity. And so um, there are a lot of computer science and AI ways to think about complexity, including like it solved games. So obviously, um, tic-tac-toe is a less complicated game than chess because every 10-year-old on the planet has solved tic-tac-toe, that they are able to play optimally, um, where chess is still like an AI battleground, you know, of getting that, that perfect algorithm where no move could be made more perfectly. Um, so, so there's ways to think like that, except then you end up with like, Okay, cool. I just need to, uh, build a artificial intelligence that plays five different editions of Dungeons and Dragons. That sounds easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, 
so that obviously wasn't going to be the way I went forward. And so there were several other um, ways to explore how large, like the actual computational possibility spaces, like, um, it, so getting back to tic-tac-toe, one of my um, favorite things ever. Uh, so there was research done by a computer scientist in the 1960s. And so think about the kind of computer scientists that we're talking about, you know, that this is a, de- a dude uh, neck deep in punch cards. Um, he built a thing called Menace, uh, the machine educable knots and crosses engine. And so it's a series of uh, matchboxes that you put little beads in and the beads tell you what move um, Menace wants to make on a tic-tac-toe board. And so this big conglomeration of cardboard boxes and um, beads can play tic-tac-toe. And it learns while you're playing tic-tac-toe, you reward it by giving it more beads when it wins and you take away beads when it loses. Um, and so it's a brilliant little doohickey. If you tried to do that same thing for chess, then you would end up with a pile of um, matchboxes that extends to the orbit of Uranus. <laughs> so, like, uh, again, cool, but that's not a a valid way for me to compare a lot of hobby games. So what I ended up doing in one sort of supporting piece of that research was... Um, I borrowed from uh, education theory, um, procedural complexity. And so that is just seeing how many steps you got to do to do the thing, which sounds incredibly simple, but is something that I haven't seen anyone else go through and actually count. Um, and so if you think about like Dungeons & Dragons and a lot of RPGs that you have... Um, a roll to hit and a roll to damage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's a choice that happens beforehand of like, what weapon do I use or whatever? Um, and so you add those up and that tells you that you've got uh, three steps, something like that, um, where you might have like some very simple uh, collectible card games. Um, your creatures automatically attack, so you don't even have the choice of do I attack or do I not attack? And then they might automatically do damage. It, there's no, um, uh, do you hit, do you not hit? It just happens. And so that means that they might only have one step. Boop, they do it. Um, and then again, comparing with some of these big old cardboard chip war games where you have to do like six things that you have to roll to spot and you have to, you know, um, Yet special rerolls for this scenario or that scenario, and you hit, but did you injure them? Well, you injured them, but did their medic save them? That kind of stuff. You can get up to like six or seven steps. Um, so that was one interesting way. So uh, it's been two years. I no longer have the chart for that like memorized, but I uh, did write up the um, some of the top selling uh, hobby games. I did that procedure on their rules and figure out how many steps it would take um, and then plotted that against their BCG rankings. And so Interesting. I believe that that one did show more complicated 
is better in this case, but we're talking about the the board game geek audience, and so mm-hmm. of course they rated Yu-Gi-Oh badly, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I wouldn't, you know, take that one to the bank. Which, which, in your opinion, is is more? Um, well, which do you think that that people would prefer if you had to do a trade off in game design between having more complex procedures to you know whatever action you might do versus having a broader menu of options for the player to choose from um you know independent of the the resolution of those different options like is analysis paralysis more of a turnoff or is you know going through this long list of steps more of a turnoff in your opinion. So, so again, my research did not find that having a long list of steps was a detriment to people. It might even be something that people like. And my theory for why they might is that uh, it builds anticipation. It mm-hmm. makes it feel like much more of an event uh, once you do actually land. And, and everybody's felt that, right? Like, okay, I need to roll this crazy number to be able to hit the dragon. Oh my god, I hit him. Okay, now I need to roll at least eight damage on a 12-sided die. Can I do it? You know, um, you feel that slope, right? Um, But analysis paralysis, where you're making those big choices instead of just having to do multiple steps, I I think that that ends up being in general, more of a art than a science question because having multiple interesting choices, I think, will sell people every time. What they don't like is having um, uh, multiple choices that you can't really see the differences in the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example... It, if you've got two weapons on your character and one of them you roll a d20 and one of them you roll two d10s, it's like, okay, well, I, I, I can see that the floor on the d10s is a two and that's better than a one, I guess. And, you know, the, the average, you're, you're making a bell curve with the two d10s. And so, you know, you're more likely to get a medium-ish outcome, but, Maybe the monster only dies if I roll like a 17, 18, 19. That's a lot more likely if I roll a d20. Eh? So you just kind of like um, stall out in a miasma of kind of like doing math that doesn't matter that much. Um, and so I think that makes people sad. I also think that dilemmas where you're cho- choosing between two bad choices are awesome for drama you know that's like when you're writing a screenplay you want to do that to your characters you know and maybe big narrative stuff you want to see um the pcs have to decide all right are we going to sacrifice the princess to the dragon or are we going to um uh go on this suicidal mission against the dragon uh, kind of choices. That's pretty cool where you've got two bad outcomes. Uh, but you don't want to deal with that every time you roll the dice. So I think that if there's multiple good game or multiple good options that, um, 
players can get excited by the different ones, then analysis paralysis doesn't really hurt you that much. Sorry, that was long-winded, but, you know, that's where I'm at. Well, we're getting a little bit long for a typical episode that we've been doing. Um, typically, after we've gotten done with the episode, we'll do a geek thing, just something in media or something that uh, is in, that has caught our interest and we want to share with other people. Um, it's it's up to you if you want if you want to have a geek thing. Um, this entire episode has been about your game, so that's definitely going to be in the uh, show notes and uh, links to your Kickstarter and links to your um, your main page and. I also found a link to your Fiasco playset. Uh, that'll be all included. So um, I'll go ahead and get started with my geek thing. Um, I found a a couple of things on YouTube in the past uh, since our last episode. One of them is the YouTube channel Real Engineering. Um, the episode that I watched was explaining what technological developments we would need to have in order for a space tele or a space elevator to actually work um, an elevator designed to lift objects from the surface of the earth up into earth orbit um, as a way as a workaround of because of how difficult it is to launch ships into space and uh, it's really it goes into the math of why a space elevator is not feasible right now and the technological problems and hurdles that would need to be overcome in order to uh in order to actually make something like that um i would recommend anybody who's interested in engineering and science uh to check out this channel it's it's not just space related stuff but space related stuff has a lot of really interesting engineering um difficulties that uh take up a large portion of the of the channel um the other thing i wanted to mention was uh something that i missed out on last year whenever they did the first time but um, a bunch of youtubers are uh, did a series that came out um, um about a week ago at the time of this episode coming out called um one excellent scene and this is a bunch of um basically movie critic or um um people who analyze movies on YouTube going through the, um, the X-Men movies and spinoffs and dissecting one particular scene from one of the movies and explaining why it is awesome. Apparently last year they did it for, uh, all of the Marvel movies for the MCU, um, in anticipation of the release of Endgame. Um, I missed that, and I'm currently in the process of watching a lot of those videos. But right now, the the number of videos that are submitted into that um, is over a hundred. So it's going to take me a while to go through all of that. So I I did watch the uh, Patrick H. William uh, Williams uh, one of that series. Um, he actually broke down a scene in a comic book because you know he resists authority, but uh, but it was pretty good. I don't think I have anything for geek things, Clayton. I haven't done anything new in a while. I thought you were required to have something for geek things. No. Isn't that like the rules? All right. No. Pretty sure this is a volunteer work here. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel, do you have anything? Yeah. So I guess I'll plug some uh, other little indie RPG work. So, So I feel like the majority of RPGs that get bought mostly are there to be 
read and to enjoy, uh, be enjoyed and thought about. And, you know, I know that there's a whole lot of RPG books that, um, get bought and, um, nobody ever actually ends up playing them. Having said that, I am decidedly sad when I get Kickstarter books or whatever delivered. Um, now that I don't have a physical gaming uh, group that I can actually play them with. And so, um, right now I've been looking at, uh, my copy of Clink, which is a, um, weird, it's like a weird West game where all of the conflict resolution is done by flipping a coin. Um, and it has some really interesting concepts in it. And it's by, uh, David Sheridan, um, who, uh, I've followed his stuff for years. And so I got this, you know, delivered maybe a year ago and I kept going, all right, well, next week, I'm totally going to play that game. And then, you know, finally the pandemic has happened and now it's staring at me. I desperately want to get this thing out and play it, but, uh, I'm going to have to wait to being able to, uh, have people over to actually do this thing. So. So that might be slightly a downer for a geek thing, but uh, I will say uh, Clink by David Sheridan um, definitely looks like it's going to be a lot of fun as soon as I can actually play it. Awesome. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for being on here with us. I hope you're uh, hope by the time this episode comes out, um, you don't need any additional people to uh, help back your concern. Don't listen to him. I always need more people. <laughs> All right, guys, what do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? Don't you mean draw cards? Deal the cards, man! Let's go! This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.